Please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Jonah. We've been in the book of Jonah now for, uh, this is our third Sunday, and if you'd like to catch up, encourage you to uh, check out the other two sermons at www.estesparkchurch.org. Just by way of summary from, from last week, in chapter 1, God spoke to Jonah, the prophet, and Jonah did not like what God had to say. So Jonah ran as far away from God as he could get and suffered for it, little, literally running to the ends of the earth as it was known in his time. The first thing he did was he got on a ship headed in the opposite direction of where God was sending him. So God sent a terrible storm that threatened the ship and everyone on board with Jonah. So that ship's crew reluctantly, hesitantly, threw Jonah to his supposed death overboard. And at that point, the storm immediately subsided. Well, then Jonah is miraculously and uniquely, and I say this with emphasis, was swallowed by a great fish, one single fish that God provided. And in that fish, Jonah experienced a type of death to self. Now, we probably won't find just one fish in the fossil record, nor be able to explain this because it was a miracle. But in this uh, fish, as I said, Jonah experienced a sort of death to self. So by way of application, are you running from God? If so, come home. Change your mind toward God. Put your faith in Christ. Then in chapter 2, Jonah has this awakening. He's come back to God. He's praying again. He had run away from God, and now he's coming home to God. It's really a picture of repentance, a, a change of mind. I don't want to do life my way. I want to learn to do life God's way. I don't want to live by my philosophies or the philosophies of the world. I want to know the things of God. And the good news here is that God is the God of second chances. And not only the God of second chances, of third chances and fourth chances. And for all who will recognize that they've been walking away from God and, and will have this turnaround, God welcomes them with open arms. But not only that, God comes running toward them. You just have to turn and God comes running toward, will come running toward you. He, he will restore you into relationship with him and restore your life as he has intended. So the application here, are you running to God? Never forget the pit from which God has rescued you. So now we come to chapter 3. And here we find Jonah is going out for God. And uh, this is where we're going to be, begin today. And I'm building off a, a um, outline I gave you last week. So just by way of, of reminding us of where we were last week, are you running for God? And if you're running for God, then make it your focus uh, to rely on him and you will be fruitful. I just say that because it's our tendency to want to produce fruit for the glory of God. And so we put our emphasis there. But to understand God's kingdom, God calls us to stay as close to him as we can get, to stay properly connected to him. And he promises that if we will do that, we will be surprised by the fruit. So just working through chapter 3 now, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord, of, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Again, here we see God is the God of second chances. He says, go a second time. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. So here we see Jonah 
in, in a kind of surrendered fashion to God. At least he's given in. And I say it that way because I don't know at what point any of us could say we are completely surrendered to God. But there's a sense where Jonah wasn't going to do what God wanted him to do. Now he's going to do what God wants him to do. Maybe reluctantly, but he's still going to be obedient. So this is the type of surrender. You know, God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. And this is not about rules that some religious organization wants to impose on people, you know, legalism. This is about understanding what God wants and then doing that. That's what we're talking about right here. So back to to verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was a very important city, a visit required three days. Now we know from our, our previous study of Jonah that Nineveh was about 800 miles from Jonah's home. So there, it's, it's far more than three days as far as a journey getting there. This three days that's being spoken of here is that, that it will take Jonah three days to speak God's word to all the primary gathering points in that city or speak from all the primary gathering points of that city. So uh, it would be like uh, gathering people at multiple town squares. And we know there are at least 120,000 people in this city. That could be a number representing men. Some say there were as many as 600,000 people. And so it's going to take three days for him to preach this. Now, verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. And there we see it. So now he's starting the city day one. And what's he doing? He's proclaiming. And notice the message. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned or Nineveh will fall. If you look at that statement, that sermon of Jonah in the original language, you will find that it was only five words long. And look what happens. The next verse, verse 5, he speaks a five-word sermon. And what does it say? It says, the Ninevites believed God. Now, wouldn't that be something? I mean, here I am, your pastor. I speak many more words than five words. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be something if I could just speak five words and we, would, we could say an entire city believed? <laughs> now, don't get too excited. I'm not ready to reduce the size of my teachings. God hasn't given me that word yet. But just think about that. Five words, and the Ninevites believed God. That word believed is a primary statement of all scriptures to anyone who will hear it. The fact that somebody would believe. It's a miracle of God. If you take, for example, Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of the Jewish people. He wasn't accepted by God and didn't become great before God because he was a good man or at least better than most. What does the Bible say about Abraham? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What was credited him as righteousness? His belief. And I would venture to guess that everyone here this morning is probably in one of two places. Either we are believing God and therefore are aligning ourselves with him, or we're suspect of God and are therefore in conflict with him, whether we realize it or not, whether it's by intention or by default. Now, it's not my job here this morning to argue anyone into believing. What's my job? It's merely to proclaim truth to anyone who will hear it. But once Jesus addressed the subject by telling those listening to him in John 6, 29, 
The work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent, to believe in Jesus. The apostles, in proclaiming the message, in Acts 16.31 said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. The Apostle Paul, in one of the great statements of all times, in Romans 1, 16-17, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the application here is to all who will hear, believe. Let your hope of one day standing confident before God be found in what Christ accomplished on the cross. All right, so now uh, Jonah here uh, in his message doesn't give the Ninevites specifics as to how they should respond to God. What does he say? A harsh message, message with no hope 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And the result of that, they believed in the original language, just a five-word sermon, and this town has changed. But look at their response. Without any prompting from Jonah, it says, They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So now they're humbling themselves to God. It's, a, it's evidence of deep sorrow. Verse 6, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd, flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, he asks. Who knows? And this is in his proclamation. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And sure enough, in verse 10, that's exactly what happened. It says, when God saw, that they, saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. That's what the NIV says. If you look at it in the New King James, it says he relented. He held off. If you look at it in the King James Version, it says that he repented. And I've got to tell you, some Bible scholars don't like the word repent being used there because it suggests that somehow God changed his mind and that maybe God didn't know exactly how the people would respond. Now, this may rattle your theology a little bit. It certainly rattles mine. Brother Andrew, a uh, famous preacher and author of the 20th century, wrote a little piece called, And God Changed His Mind, showing places where God was set out to do one thing, but when the people prayed, something else happens. And it presents the possibility that God allows people in His processes, that when people pray, Things happen. The hand of God is literally literally moved. Now, I can't tell you I understand all that, how it fits in theology, but it seems to be evident in, in many places. So God had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So the 40 days, it's not going to be destroyed. You've got to love that. Here, God is prepared 
to destroy this wicked place. But when the people turned and believed, God held back. And you know what's really amazing about that? There will be nearly an additional four generations of Ninevites because of this prayer meeting that happens here today, another 150 years later. Now, I have to admit, in my studies, I was ready to give a negative message here and say, you know, unfortunately, that only lasted 150 years because eventually the people forgot and changed their minds and turned from God and the judgment comes. That's the book of Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum, the day when the people forgot God and refused to listen to the prophet. In fact, that may be about all I give you from Nahum, except for one other piece that we have here. It could have been negative like that, but the truth is that uh, another four generations got an opportunity, another four generations of Ninevites, because of these people right here turning back to God. And you know, our great country of America has enjoyed over 200 years of blessing because we understood the centrality and the significance of God. Back in 1775, the First Continental Congress called the colonies to pray for wisdom in forming a new nation. And that's a call that has continued throughout the generations of the United States history. In 1863, President Lincoln proclaimed a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. 1952, there was a joint resolution between Congress and President Truman declaring an annual national day of prayer. And in 1988, this law was amended and signed by President Reagan, permanently setting the first Thursday of every May to be the national day of prayer. It's gone on from every president since until recently. And please don't take this as a political statement. Take it for what it's worth in the last few years, the National Day of Prayer has been largely ignored by the current um, administration. Even our own state of Colorado has declared the National Day. In fact, it was just this last May, in time for the National Day of Prayer, they declared the National Day of Prayer to be unconstitutional. So we're forgetting God, yet a survey of the average American would suggest to you that America's greatest days are behind us. Do you hear what I'm saying? This isn't an attack on a political party. This isn't a promotion of another political party. This isn't an attack on an individual who happens to hold an, an office. What I find interesting in our text is that the people here, if you notice, they're the ones who are first called to pray, and then the king follows suit. Perhaps the actions of the leaders, get this, could it be that the actions of the leaders are only a reflection of what's going on in the hearts of their constituents? And if anything, maybe this is an indictment against the church, for as the church goes, so goes the world. And there's an application here. It's a call to the church to humble themselves before God and to pray. Would you read with me Second Chronicles 7.14? I know this was written for the Jewish people, but it gives the character of God here. When God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And let me read Ezekiel 22.30 by myself. Again, God says, So I sought for a man among them, who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, 
but I found none. It's a picture of a day when, right prior to God's judgment, when he's looking and asking who is praying for those who don't believe, and when he could no longer find anybody praying for the unbelievers, it's then that he comes in judgment. Well, this takes us to Jonah chapter 4. In Jonah 4, just going back to my outline from last week, we get a contrast between Jonah's frustration with God and God's great kindness. You see, while Jonah is sitting there stewing over the fact that God would extend kindness to these horrible Ninevites, God gives him a little lesson on just how far Jonah is from understanding the heart of God. So the application here is, do you have a gripe with God? Consider his kindness. Perhaps it's you who needs to be doing some adjusting and not him. So taking it to verse 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. There's great revivals going on. Jonah doesn't like it. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Boy, there's something to be angry with God over. <laughs> he says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Boy, you know, here's the enemy of the Jews, and Jonah's gone to preach to them, and they've all been saved. If, if only the book of Jonah had ended with chapter 3, if only, then Jonah might have gone down in history as one of the greatest prophets of all times. He speaks five words and an entire city is led to the Lord. But unfortunately, that wasn't the heart of Jonah. God shows kindness to a particular people group and Jonah doesn't like it. How ironic. Do you realize this is the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother all over again? Hold on to it. I'll come back to it. But let's consider for a moment who these Ninevites were. First, we know from chapter 1 that God's judgment was going to come upon them because they were greatly wicked. History tells us that they were known throughout the world as being an extremely violent and merciless people, that they would impale people on sharp poles stuck in the ground to roast them in the sun. They beheaded people by the thousands, stacking their skulls at the city gates. They would skin people alive. Again, back to the prophecy of Nahum, he tells us that they fed their young to lions, that they piled corpses in the streets so that people literally would trip over them, and they dashed babies to pieces. I heard much more horrible things than what I'm going to share with you today, but these were a violent people, and all of this was done against people without respect of age or gender. So can you kind of see why Jonah doesn't like them? For him to go and preach to them might mean that they could actually be forgiven? No way. He didn't like it. Forgive my illustrations here, but it would be like sending someone who lost loved ones in the Twin Towers to go proclaim Romans 5.8 to Al-Qaeda. What does Romans 5.8 say? It says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we are reconciled to, to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's Romans 5, 8 through 10. It would have been like, and again, forgive my illustration, like sending a survivor of the Holocaust to go and reach Nazis. Do you kind of hear what we're talking about here? 
we are no different than Jonah in the sense that we love to talk about God's kindness and mercy when it applies to the many, but maybe not when it has to do with compassion being shown toward, and you fill in the blank there. God gave us Jonah so that we would understand how his love is so far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. The old hymn, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Verse 4. But the Lord replied to Jonah, Have you any right to be angry? Do you have any right to be angry with me because I'm kind? Verse 5. Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what what uh, would happen to the city. Wow, there's a revival going on. Jonah has just preached to a city, and the people are repenting. He should be in there ministering to them, teaching them the things of God. Boy, if I were a pastor and had that kind of response, I wouldn't be going outside and weeping about what just happened. I'm telling you, it's the story of the prodigal son. When the younger brother who has gone out and squandered everything the father has returns home and the father throws a big party, it's the elder brother who refuses to come in. I've worked hard for you all these days. I'm not going to partake in throwing a party for this brother who squandered everything. And friends, there's going to be a great banquet in the sky someday and many are going to miss it because of their rejection and their misunderstanding of how great the love of God is. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Second time, do you have a right to be angry with me about my kindness? Do you have a right to be angry with me about the vine? Jonah said, I do. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. <laughs> Don't overcomplicate what's happening here. Someone has well said that you can measure a man by what it takes to make him angry. And in this case, Jonah is angry because shade's being taken away from him. He's angry because of, of a lack of personal comfort, yet he doesn't give a rip about the people of the city. And just as God provided the vine for shade, God also moved in the hearts of these people to draw them to themselves. And so the application here, are we more concerned about our personal comfort than we are about the souls of the people of our world, those that God has nurtured? <laughs> Jonah is a message to all of us so that we can better understand the heart of God. And what is God's heart? Well, verse 11 tells us when God says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? <laughs> you see, God cares for people. He cares for the animals in the city as well. One time, the religious leaders were pushing Jesus to give them some kind of sign. If you're going to go around with this kind of authority, 
acting like you're the Messiah, give us some kind of sign. And this is what Jesus told them. Keep in mind, they've been seeing Jesus' miracles, hearing Jesus' teaching. And Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now look at verse 41 carefully. The men of Nineveh, look at this, the evil men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Who's serving as judges at the great judgment? It's not the religious people. It's the Ninevites who heard a five-word sermon and repented. And he says, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah's five-word sermon. And he says, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So how is Jesus greater than Jonah? Well, first off, he gave a whole lot more than just a five-word sermon. But he's greater in his personhood. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus, the very Son of God. He's greater in his influence. While Jonah's ministry reached one city, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is greater in his message. Jonah came with a message of judgment. Forty days, and you will be overturned. But Jesus came with a message of peace and reconciliation with God. Jesus is greater in his motivation. Jonah nearly killed himself in an effort to avoid showing kindness to these people, but Jesus was killed as an action of that same kindness. And finally, he's greater in his love. Jonah despised the thought of kindness being extended to some, but Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice to prove that love to all who will receive it. All praise to God. This is the word of God. I would like for us to sing together the hymn, How Great the Father's Love for Us.